All right, well, let me thank you guys first off just for your support, for your prayers on our behalf. We, uh, we are in daily need of it. Uh, we feel our need of it uh, as we are trying to do this work in Ireland. Uh, there are good days and bad days, and so it's, uh, we just very much appreciate the fact knowing that there are people praying for us. Um, and I'm very thankful to uh, have gotten to know your pastor, particularly Pete and Nick. I know they probably haven't told you, or maybe they did. I put them through much suffering as they took my class uh, at uh, the seminary, but I've been very thankful to get to know them and to uh, call them my friends, and I'm very, very appreciative of that. Um, so what you're going to see is that Artistry is not my gift, so you're going to have to use your imagination a little bit here, um, just so I can kind of show you a few things. I'm going to start over here. We'll go like this. All right. In general, Ireland looks like this. <laughs> All right. So Ireland is roughly the size of Indiana. So it's not terribly big. It has roughly the same population. Um, so it's, it's quite a small island. You can get from the north to the south, you know, from the northernmost point to the southernmost point in probably five, six hours. So it's, it's not a big country. And so when you tell people that, you know, like when my wife and I got married, we had to move from Kentucky to Utah, and it took two and a half days drive, they can't fathom that. And they're like, well, you're halfway in the ocean by the time you do that type of driving here. And so if you live more than 10 minutes from your work, everybody asks you, well, why do you live so far away? Why don't you live closer to work? Because they don't have that distance, that spatial kind of uh, concept that we do. So um, this is Ireland. Now, the island as a whole is called Ireland, but right here is the border. And this is Northern Ireland. These are two entirely different countries. Uh, we live in the Republic of Ireland in the south. Northern Ireland is part of the UK. And so when we cross the border, we are technically going into the UK. So we live, this is a little Cooley Peninsula right here. We live right about here. So Dublin is right about here. Belfast is right here. And we are almost exactly halfway in between in a little town called Dundalk. Ireland only really has two cities, Dublin and Cork. Cork is down here in the south. Uh, and that's because to be a city, you had to have been given uh, the title of a city by the crown prior to Ireland becoming a uh, its own country. And so Dundalk has about 34,000 people, uh, but it's a town. There's kind of only two, maybe three cities in all of Ireland. Everything else is a town or, or a village. And so we live very close to this border, which means we have to always deal with euros and um, sterling. But this border right here is where all of the violence, all of the troubles, as they call it, um, happened. And so even at the police station in Dundalk, as you drive by, there's a giant uh, stone wall and there's this kind of semicircle plastering on this wall. And that's because a couple decades ago, 
the, uh, some guys parked a car full of dynamite, blew the wall up, and they were trying to rush in to free some of the people who had been taken prisoner. And so now there's this massive wall. So cars were very And not long before we got there, there was a border crossing. And so you would go to the border crossing, you'd have to stop, and there'd be cops there, and they'd have uh, you know, the long stick with a mirror under it, looking under your car, do you have bombs? They would check, they'd stop buses to see, does anybody have a bomb on, on the car? Uh, but thankfully that's been done away with. So now there is an open border, so you can go back and forth. But what happened? So, you know, history is very messy. There's never one, one event that starts everything. But one event that people always go back to was on August 27, 1979, the IRA murdered Lord Mountbatten who was Queen Elizabeth's second cousin. And the murder of Lord Mountbatten set off what they call the Troubles. And so from that point on, the IRA, which is the Irish uh, Republican Army, and the UVF, which is the Ulster Volunteer Force, were continually at odds. The IRA was Catholic, the UVF was Protestant, and so they couched this constant term, Catholic and Protestant, uh, uh, it wasn't religious. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, you believe that the Pope is the head of the church, I'm going to fight you or something like that. It was entirely political. And so the IRA, they wanted a unified Ireland. They wanted to get rid of the border and just have one Ireland. The UVF, Protestants, they wanted to be part of the British crown. They wanted to maintain that relationship. And so they were fighting to keep that kind of independence from the, the republic as a whole. And so for so long, that fighting was going on. Now, it's much better now, but there are still little things here and there. When we first moved there, um, about three miles down the road for us was a guy who was arrested because the cops went into his house and found a stash of guns. And guns are illegal in Ireland. You can't own a gun. But they found just a stash of guns because he was part of the IRA and they... Um, they're trying to clean it up and not let that conflict go anymore. Uh, so just to tell you a little bit about the Republic of Ireland where we live, so only 1.6% of the country is evangelical. Now, they define evangelical under this broad category that includes everything from Presbyterians and Baptists to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. So the actual number of evangelicals is far less than 1.6, but it's 1.6% uh, percent evangelical, which is extremely low. And there are about, Ireland is made up of a lot of little tiny villages all over. There's roughly about, well, there's over 70 villages of 5,000 people that have no gospel presence whatsoever. They're not near a church. They have nobody who's a Christian. There's just nothing going on. And so there is so much work to be done in, in Ireland. Uh, more people are coming, but it's, it's, it's getting more and more difficult to get a visa to get into the country to do ministry work. We had uh, some friends of ours in New York who were trying to come and work out in Galway, which is kind of right here, and they were denied a visa to come and work because they said the church they were going to be connected with was too small and didn't need them. So I don't know how the government gets to decide whether or not a church needs somebody, but that's what they did. They said, you can't come. You're, you're not, uh, the church doesn't need you. Uh, so 1.6 evangelical, but there's a growing number of uh, neo-Druids, uh, New Age mysticism, witches. Uh, maybe I think one time before I mentioned that here in Carlingford, which is kind of on this little peninsula right here. 
Carlingford is, if you see it, it looks like a fairy tale village because you've got these mountains behind it, you've got the water from uh, the Carlingford Bay coming up, you've got Prince John or King John's castle, you know, from, from Robin Hood, he had this castle built. Um, and so it's very picturesque, it's a very old village, I think it built around the uh, late 12th century. And so it kind of is bringing in all of these new age ideas and new age um, worshipers. And so there's a lot of witches who live there. Um, but it's not just in Carlingford, there's some in Dundalk. So my wife, Ashley, needed to have a, a dress hem. She was doing something to it, and we took it to this lady in Dundalk, and we found out well, she was a witch. And so we walked into her house. It was very odd. She had this giant picture of Jesus, a painting of Jesus, but then you go into this little room that she was showing us where she does all of her work, and she's got a bookshelf of how to cast spells and uh, witchcraft and stuff like that. And so it's very surreal. And, I mean, she was very pleasant, and as we were leaving, she tells my wife, can I just, can I just tell you something? I'm, I'm just getting this feeling of pregnancy. And my wife just says, well, it's not me. <laughs> so I don't know what that was about. Uh, she never got pregnant, and nobody we knew got pregnant, so there you go. I don't know uh, uh, what that was uh, about. But there's just the, the number of this New Age mysticism is just growing it's just on the rise. In Dundalk, um, it's about 70% would identify as Catholic. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that uh, they go to Mass. It doesn't mean that they know anything about what Catholicism teaches. It means that they still traditionally identify as an Irish person would. So, one of the, the barriers that we face when we try to talk to people is that for the Irish, you are Irish and Catholic. There's not a separation between the two. So if you're not Catholic, you're technically not Irish. And so as we talk to people, we, we have to help them see you can still be Irish and hear the gospel and be, we never say Protestant, but be a Christian. And that is so hard for people to hear and to understand. The, the wife of the now-retired pastor of Dundalk Baptist Church, uh, she's been a Christian for 45 years. And to her dying day, her mother believed she was in rebellion. And that one day, she would just come back to the Catholic Church because to be Irish is to be Catholic. And so while it's 70% Catholic, that doesn't mean anything. All it means is they, are, they view themselves as Irish. They don't know anything about it. They couldn't, you couldn't have a theological discussion. You've got to start from, from ground zero. So that's one barrier is, is Irishness and Catholicism go hand in hand. The other issue is all this, the troubles that took place is that Protestants or Protestantism is viewed as something inherently British. And the Irish and the British, as they say, go together like chalk and cheese. It's, they don't mix. And so... If you say you're Protestant, immediately a barrier goes up is, oh, well, what you want is you want to make me British. You want to make me like them. And that's because Protestantism came over to Ireland with Cromwell and his army. And so they view it as an attack by the British to bring in this other religion and make them non-Irish. So you've got all these barriers that are rooted in history and identity that you've got to kind of break down that doesn't really, 
have anything to do with the gospel, nothing to do with religion, so much of politics and um, uh, identity. So let me just tell you a few things that we've done to try to reach out. Uh, So when we moved there, we did lots of Easter outreach events. Um, Nobody in Ireland has a Bible, all right? In fact, you can't buy a Bible in Ireland. There are no stores that sell Bibles. So what we decided to do is we're going to have an Easter outreach event we would hand out flyers. We invited a bunch of people to come for the kids. We had these giant bouncy castles, and uh, we had food and just games. But we wanted to give everybody a Bible, so we made these little Easter baskets. And in it, we put uh, Bibles and kind of gospel tracts and other things for everybody, and we handed them out. And we did this for several years. We've given out hundreds of Bibles uh, to people who never had one. And you know, our, our prayer is that at some point, it's now in their house, maybe they will turn to it and look at it. And we think, okay, well, that's, that's great. They have a Bible. But the expectation that people have in Ireland of even owning a Bible is so different. So we gave a Bible to one of Ashley's good friends who's not a Christian. We gave her a Bible, and she lives in a very small, she lives in Carlingford at the time, a small village. She had it sitting on her little side table. And somebody from the village came over, and just saw that she had a Bible and just started swearing at her and cursing her out and just ripping her up one side down and the other for the fact that she owned a Bible. You know, how dare you that think you can read it, that you can have a Bible and, and all this stuff. Uh, so owning a Bible is still not something that is fairly acceptable. It's a big thing. And if you have one, you, you kind of have to be prepared for other people to come and make some comment that you would even dare to own a Bible. So we tried to pass out tons of Bibles, uh, and we did that for many years, and it worked really well. It worked really well. We tried to do an autumn outreach, because I thought, okay, we did one in Easter. Let's do one in autumn. And uh, so I got one of our, the people in the church who's a farmer. I said, can you bring a tractor, and we'll have hay rides for kids, and we'll have s'mores and, like, candied apples and things like that, and we'll you know, we'll be able to share the gospel, maybe give out Bibles. So we, we did that, and it bombed horrendously. Um, the Irish kids hated s'mores. They hated, can- yep. they hated candied apples. And when everybody left, our, they had taken the candied apples and just drugged them through the house. The s'mores were like covering the grass. And we never did an autumn one again after that because it just failed. Uh, so that one didn't work, but we tried something. Some... A lot of this is you have to be willing to try, right? You have to be willing just to try something and see if it works. If it doesn't work, at least you did it. You can try something else next time. But if you don't try, you don't know what, what's going to work. So we tried. We stopped. Uh, it didn't work. We've done a, a football outreach, um, a soccer outreach. And it was we did it in conjunction with a group called uh, Coaching for Christ. And so it was a free uh, football so used to saying football now, a soccer camp, and they would come, and then during different times there would be a break, and they would meet with their coach, and the coach would share the gospel with them, they would talk about things, and then after the four-day camp, we would have a big ceremony at the church, and we would say, here's what we're telling your kids, and we'd get to give the gospel to the parents as well, and give them food, uh, and that worked really well for a couple of years, and so we were, we were thankful that we got to do something like that. Uh, I started at our house on a Sunday afternoon, what I called dinner in the Bible. Um, my, uh, 
I'm not very creative with names, and so that was as good as I could get. Dinner in the Bible just says it what, is, what it is. Uh, but what we did is we would go out and invite people, come to our house, have dinner, and say, we're going to have a Bible study afterwards. You're more than welcome to stay. If you don't want to, that's totally fine. You can leave. Uh, but, you know, they come for dinner. They're more likely to stay. And so we would have dinner, and then we would just have a short Bible study. And I was doing a series called, uh, what I called glimpses, just tiny little glimpses of who is God, who is Christ, who is the Holy Spirit, what is the church. Um, no more than 15, 20 minutes at max, because these were people who knew nothing. Even though they were Catholic, they knew nothing. And I would sometimes say, you know, here's what the Catholic Church teaches, and here's what the Bible says, and they would say, oh yeah, I can see that. I can see what you're saying there. But nobody cares. They can see there's a difference, but, but nobody cares. So we did that for a while, um, and then that kind of fizzled out. Um, we had a, a good friend of mine, Doug Van Dorn, come. And this was at the end of October during Halloween, because even though it's Irish, or sorry, Catholic, pretty much everybody is secular. Everybody is very materialistic, very secular, but Ireland is the land of the supernatural. It is the land of superstition. Um, everybody is superstitious with crazy things. So there's, a, there's this belief that if you put new shoes on a table, bad luck will come to you. So my wife was with her friend. Her name's Joe. Uh, she's not a Christian. They had gone out. My wife bought... Uh, a new pair of shoes. It was in the box. She set it on the table, and Joe runs and pushes her out of the way and knocks the box off the table. It's like, well, you can't put this box of new shoes on the table. That's bad luck. So it's just ingrained to them. Um, and so, you know, they've got superstitions like that, but there's also, you know, talks of banshees and giants and leprechauns. Um, in fact, in Carlingford up here, there's the Cooley Mountains, and one man swears he saw leprechauns on the mountain. And so what he did is he had passed through European Union legislation to make a portion of this mountain blocked off as kind of leprechaun habitat. And so you can't go and kind of just do whatever you want here because that is the land of leprechauns. And it was passed through EU legislation. So this is kind of the world that even though they're secular, they still have a supernatural worldview. So we invited Doug Van Dorn to come, and we had this conference uh, on science and God, and so he was able to talk about some of these supernatural things, and that went really well, and, and kind of give the gospel, and uh, that, that was good. So uh, that's kind of what we've done. Just really quick, where are we now? So the pastor of Dundalk Baptist Church has retired. He retired in February. I've taken over. Um, we have, for the first time in 35 years of this church's history, we have deacons, so I kind of got a few individuals last year. We went through a course, we talked about it, I preached on it, and then the church voted. We had four deacons, and in July of this year was the first full year in 35 years this church has had deacons. And then in July of this year as well, one of those men, who were the deacons, uh, was voted in as a pastor. And so now uh, I've got another pastor here at Dundalk uh, Baptist Church, which has, been, which has been great. He's been so helpful. Um, Ashley and I do lots of counseling. That has been one thing that surprised me is the amount of counseling that we do. You know, life is hard. Um, we live in a very rural area. A uh, lot of issues going on, and so we've had de dealt with everything from 
marriage issues to marijuana. I mean, it's, it has been uh, very eye-opening, I think, the amount of counseling. But God has helped us, and uh, we're thankful for the opportunities that we have been able to, to do. Um, we also do something called Grace Marriage, which is started by a, he was a family lawyer in Owensboro, Kentucky. He was a divorce lawyer, and couples were coming to him because he wanted to get divorced, and he would say, well, let me, let me, let's work on this for a second, and he tried to help them not get divorced, and he realized, well, I'm not being a very good divorce lawyer. Let me stop this, and he created this curriculum called Grace Marriage, and so we've kind of gone through that to try to encourage couples to strengthen their marriages in the church and invite others to come and, and be a part of it. So that's been, that's been really helpful. That's been good. Um, and just a few things that we are looking forward to doing. Um, there is a technical college in Dundalk called DKIT. And the Christian Union there, the new president, sent me a text last year and asked, would I be willing to come and talk to them about, is the Bible relevant in 2023? Uh, and so I went and I talked about that, and everybody was really happy, and they all said that was, went really well. And so they have come to us and asked if they can partner with our church, that we can kind of help uh, the Christian union at this college and do things with them and reach out to that college community, which we didn't have an entry into before. And so that's been really encouraging. Uh, one of the other things that is encouraging is that we have a few what, what they call travelers coming to our church. Uh, travelers are what we would probably call here like gypsies, but gypsies is a derogatory term in Ireland. You, if you call a traveler a gypsy, you're pretty much going to be beaten up close to death. So they're, they're travelers. Um, and so we have a couple travelers who have become saved. They have, uh, they're coming to our church, and this is a, one of the most unreached peoples in kind of Western Europe are the travelers. And so we are now having this in into this community that we are hoping to uh, kind of work and get others to come. There, it's, a very difficult, it's a very difficult community because they have been known just for destroying everything. So one of the ladies uh, who's coming to our church now who's a traveler, she plans on getting married in November and she has called all the hotels to try to reserve a place that they can get married. And the moment they hear their, her last name, they say, sorry, we don't, have any, uh, we don't have any room. And that's because travelers are known for just destroying everything, just ransacking the place. So they're going to use our church, um, but they, just have, they have a bad reputation. A lot of it is unfortunately deserved. Uh, but we have a, a means to, to reach out to them now. And then the other thing that we are looking towards is there's a small little village about 20 minutes south of Dundalk, right about there, called Castle Bellingham. We have, I think, three families from our church who live in that area. And so we're looking kind of long-term and hoping that we can plant a church long-term here in this little village called Castle Bellingham, uh, but that's, you know, coming up, that's down the road, something we, we want to do, and hopefully now that there's another pastor of Dundalk Baptist Church, more responsibilities can be given to him, and we can kind of focus on, okay, let's see if we can plant a church here in Castle Bellingham and see, see what we can do down there. So um, I'll stop there for the moment. Uh, it's kind of a quick rundown of things we've done, 
uh, and what were some of the things we hope to do. But any questions or comments or thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. How much red tape is there in the getting Bibles uh, to, to you? Um, it would be much easier if you wanted to do something like that to order it directly from Amazon.co.uk or send money that. Okay. Because I don't know why. But the way the postal system is set up is if you send a box, let's just say you send a box with like 20 Bibles, yeah. it will probably cost two to 300 in shipping to get to right. Ireland. Okay. Whereas if you go up across the border, like 20 minutes, it's like $15. I don't know why they do it that way, but that's how it is. So usually the easiest thing is um, just the money? Would be... Money or go to amazon.co.uk and I, I can give you our address okay. and you can just send How it is your way. supply right now? Uh, fairly good, actually, because we had... So I mentioned we are doing this thing with the, the Christian Union. Uh, these are all... These are kids who either don't appreciate interested or they're new Christians, and so none of them have Bibles. So we had a couple in Texas found out, and they sent us... Uh, I think about seven hundred dollars oh, worth really? of Bibles. Oh. Um, and what uh, what is your uh, translation that you use to? Uh... Oh, I mean, usually it's something like the ESV or the NIV. Okay. I mean, so with all of the the conflict, right, between between Ireland and Northern Ireland, which is heavily connected to the crown, right? You don't normally want to hand out like a King James version or New King James <laughs> or something like that. There's a uh, Issues that go with that. <laughs> Anything else? Any other? Yeah. It impresses me that uh, the situation in the West is Hang on, Danny. Thank you. It impresses me the situation it, um, is a bit like Paul uh, on the uh, in Acts 17, where he perceives that they are very religious. They may not have a temple, per se, to an unknown God, but they yeah. are very religious. Would that approach work, do you think? Uh, I don't know that they're very religious. I think they're very superstitious. They're very spiritual. It's just, yeah, that's a good word. They're very spiritual. So it's not that they're religion. It's that the assumption is there is a supernatural world. They believe in superstition, but religion... They don't, want, they don't want anything to do with that. And part of it is because the Catholic Church has so abused you know, the stories. There's been so much abuse within the Catholic Church. People are just fed up. So they are Catholic, but they hate the Bible. That gets grouped into the religion, and they're not really wanting to hear that. They, because of the history, they still have a very spiritual worldview. And so sometimes you kind of jump off of that, you know, you grab onto that rope and you try to, to go that way. I mean, I, I've had conversations with people who have told me, like, they're, they're trying to figure out how do I think about this, and they're saying, you know, I, I was in my house, and on the wall, the face of, uh, what's his name, uh, Padre Pio, I think his name is, appears 
on the wall, and he's saying this to me. It's like, okay, well, what do you do with that? How do you, how do you go from that and try to help them understand the gospel from a biblical worldview? Um, and so people have that type of, of just perception of reality. It's, it's very spiritual. Even Joe, Ashley's friend that I mentioned a couple times, like we've shared the gospel with her a, numerous times. And every time she says, you know, when I start to think about these things, that night I start to have nightmares. And she says, there are times where I wake up and I feel like there is this black figure standing at the end of my bed. And so she doesn't want to think about it because that's what happens to her when she starts thinking about the gospel and stuff. And, and so this is, it, it, they're not religious per se, but they are very spiritual, supernatural world. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so everyone can think I'm crazy, but there's some Christian podcasts going around and there's a lot of people talking lately especially with, like, some eyewitness accounts of things in, like, spiritual places like Utah, where, like, Mormons are very spiritual. Even if they don't understand Mormon doctrine, they're just, yeah, I'm just a very spiritual person. Um, I've heard eyewitness accounts from Christian missionaries who I know, love, and trust in Utah, and they've witnessed, like, almost weird creatures and things like that, and they've had uh, sleep paralysis and Anyway, a lot of Christians understand this to be demonic oppression, and I'm curious if um, you've observed that, and you mentioned the one guy talking about leprechauns, and it's like, yes, maybe he's crazy, but I'm also just curious of, like, what, how did, you know, maybe these are demons messing with people, and, mm. and their, their ultimate objective is to deceive people. Yeah. It doesn't mean that necessarily leprechauns are legit, leprechauns that yeah, yeah, are yeah. real, but, yeah. like, if they can play into the fantasies of man's minds and, and deceive them in anything that's anything but the truth, you know, yeah. I'm just curious if that's something you would consider. Um, yeah, I, I think so. I, I feel like our and that's time... just me speaking. I'm not speaking for the church. I'm just, it's, just, it's something I'm researching, so I don't want to yeah. make any of the pastors in the room cringe. We can talk about it. I'm just, I'm just saying that there are... There are Christian circles who have talked about this, and I'm curious if you've, you know, you've witnessed this. Yeah. Um, I feel like having lived in Ireland almost 10 years now, you are more aware of the reality of a spiritual war than what I think we are in America. It is not uncommon to go to somebody's house, some random door will shut, and they'll get up and go, shoo, shoo, because they're trying to get the ghost or whatever out of the house. Or um, burning sage as you walk through the house to try to cleanse the house. And sometimes, you know, as they're, they're telling you things that have gone on, you're like, okay. I don't know what to make of that, but you can't just dismiss it and say, oh, well, you hallucinated or something like that. So I do think there is a lot of spiritual oppression going on in Ireland. And I think the fact that they are so superstitious and their worldview is already so supernatural that that is just ingrained in them. And so like talking to Joe, Ashley's friend, when you start talking about the gospel, her life starts to crumble 
and she has nightmares and she sees these things at the end of her bed. And Ashley's told her many times, like, look, I think this is a spiritual attack. You've got to address this. And, you know, she doesn't want to, but um, I, I think there, there's, there's definitely spiritual oppression going on there. And there is, I mean, so I grew up in Utah. I, I lived there from 1988 till 2005. I mean, that, that's my home. It's very interesting, when we moved to Ireland, the same weight you kind of felt in Utah living there is the same weight I felt in Ireland. And the, the correlations between the two are very similar. And, and so living in Ireland, you kind of feel that this, there is this spiritual oppression that hangs over you. So I, I, think, I think there is, yeah. Oh, sorry, okay. Yes. I may have this wrong, or I may have dreamt this, but the last time that we were on Zoom with you, I, th I thought your wife and you were talking about there's two groups of Christians, one being very prideful, and you don't seem to really um, have unity. With so uh, if I remember what, what, kind of probably what she was saying is, even though you've got the Protestants in the north, you've got Christians in the south, there is still this uneasy relationship even between Christians. And so, I mean, there have been times that we have been at some, some conference and we're sitting at a table and all the Christians there are from Northern Ireland. And you just get the feeling, it's like, there is still, there's something still between us. Like, even though I'm American and I'm not from Ireland, it's like, oh, you work in the South. And so... I think probably what, what she was talking about was that relationship between the Christians in the north, they kind of have this looking down their nose at Christians from the south type of idea. What's interesting is the percentage of Christian missionaries that leave Northern Ireland in respect to their population, they're like third in the world. But none of them go south. Nobody wants to go south. Now maybe... It's a good thing. Maybe people in the South wouldn't listen to them to begin with. Uh, but there's no desire to be like, okay, what can we do in the South? And so a lot of the activity of Christian missions done in Ireland is from everywhere else. Because in the North, it's, there's just that type of relationship. That it, it's hard to, to kind of just say, look, we're all Christians. Why, why, why is there this kind of, I don't know, this uneasiness between us? Do you have any speculation or feel why that would be? I think it's just because they, are, they have been for so long Christian. They're the Protestants, the South are the Catholics. And for how long, especially those from Belfast, how much? Uh, so the troubles only ended, you know, the mid-90s. So all of the fighting, all of the murdering, all of the bloodshed is still within living memory for almost everybody up there. And I think it's very difficult to get rid of that mindset when you've lived through it. I think it's getting better, but it's not gone. Anything else? Uh, so when we first established a relationship uh, as a church with you specifically, 
um, in, I think the kind of structure, the way we perceived it, whether accurate or not, was um, Pastor Murphy was the pastor of a church and you are a missionary. Has your role now that you are the pastor and, and praise the Lord, you have this other pastor, but uh, has your role changed or evolved as a result of this? And would you still consider yourself um, like a missionary or yeah. how, how does that kind of change? Yeah, um, it has evolved. You're right. So part of the legal requirement for us to be in Ireland was we had to be connected to a church. So if we're not, we're illegal in the country. So we came to plant a church in Carlingford, out on that peninsula over there. That was the goal. And over seven, seven eight years, we really saw almost every door kind of slammed in our face. And like people didn't want us there. Um, even to the point where Ashley tried to get onto the, the parent-teacher board at the kids' school just to have influence in there. And the, the kind of the head of that PTA left and Ashley was supposed to take over. And so some people that she knew was like, oh, well, we'll come and we'll vote for you. And they all came and they kind of staged a coup to get her out to move her away. So it was getting abundantly clear that that was not the area that we needed to be. Um, so I have taken over the church. So the, the role has shifted a little bit in that um, I, I am functioning more as a pastor of this church. However, my hope, my goal is to see hopefully another person raise up to be a pastor and then we look down to Carlingford to try to start a church down there. So, um, oh, sorry, I said Carlingford, Castle Bellingham, sorry, yeah, Castle Bellingham. So that, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the trajectory I kind of see us, us going. And like I, I said last night to the men, you know, movement in Ireland is so slow. So we talk about we're going to plant a church in Castle Bellingham that might be 10, 15 years down the line. A lot of work will have to be done before then, but that's like the 10, 15 year goal to get there, right? I think we're, we got two minutes. If anybody has a two minute question. <laughs> Considering um, perhaps outreaches to established Christians who might want to go to seminary. Uh, you mean within the church? Yes. Yeah, so like the, the one guy who's now a pastor of the church, he is going to seminary. He's going to Reform Baptist Seminary. Um, so we do have a few who, well, we have one who's going, a few who are interested. Um, so we'll see. There, there, could be, there could be more who kind of go that direction. What I was thinking more along the lines of is uh, offering seminary courses at your church. Oh, yeah. We've, I've actually done that. It's hard, it's hard to get people to come to things, I've realized. That, that's, been, that's been one of the, the difficulties is we've tried, we've done a few courses, uh, and usually you get the same two, three people, which is great for them. Uh, um, so that may be something we try again in the future. We have done it in the past. We have done the past, but that may be something we do, do again. Well, I think we're, we're probably just out of time, so I can turn it back over to you if Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are still about the building of your kingdom and that you have sent men and women all over this world to proclaim the gospel, to herald the name of Christ, and how we do thank you that no spiritual oppression, no king of this world can stop the advancement of your kingdom. 
And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to save sinners. You would continue to bring them to a knowledge of yourself, that they might behold your glory in the face of Christ. And that there would be many more worshipers on this, this globe to proclaim your worth and to exalt the name of Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us in just a little bit now to do that very thing, to exalt the name of Jesus as we sing, as we pray and hear your word preached. To you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.